I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are, because coming up, NPR's David Fulkenflick talks about media mogul Rupert Murdoch, who long before he even founded Fox News, was using his empire to advance his, um, interests? The unwillingness of Geraldine Ferraro, a Catholic, to oppose abortion firmly angered Murdoch. Plus, it's said he also held, quote, a conviction that women were emotionally ill-equipped to hold high office. Uh, this is the show that isn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. This is Livewire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with David Falkenflick, comedian April Richardson, and music from Shelby Earl. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, the Not Ready for NPR players, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. everybody, welcome to another edition of Livewire, recorded as always in front of a live crowd at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon. My name's Luke Burbank, I'm your host. We've got a fascinating, funny, fabulous show for you this week. Uh, comedian April Richardson is going to stop by. She has a story of what you're hoping your mom doesn't say when you tell her that you just got dumped. Did you fart in front of him? Also, Shelby Earl, an amazing singer-songwriter from Seattle, uh, will favor us with some music. And NPR media correspondent Dave Falkenflick, he's going to talk about the only time that he's actually met Fox's Rupert Murdoch in the flesh. Well, I can write this, uh, you know, new chapter in my life. You know, this is all, all a chance for me to begin anew. Murdoch is the uh, subject of a new book that David has written. And speaking of right-wing networks, I actually started things off at the Alberta Rose Theater by telling the crowd about my own conservative media roots. Take a listen. I just want to let you guys know something about me right here at the beginning of the show. I actually got my first radio job working at a conservative talk radio station. It's true. It's true. It was actually the Fox Radio affiliate in Seattle, Hot Talk 570 KVI. Yeah. And let me tell you, the talk was hot. Very, very hot. 
It was an exciting thing for me, though, because I was 22. It was my first job right out of college. And I got to go on a lot of adventures. We would do these live broadcasts from different places. Like, we went to this thing called the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC. And I got to meet a young John Boehner, who was weirdly orange, even in 1995, in case you're scoring at home. I met a, a, an older and pretty confused Charlton Heston at a book signing. I think he thought he was on the planet of the apes still, which technically speaking, he was, right? Because it's Earth. Isn't it Earth? I don't pay attention. It was really exciting to get to go to these different things, but maybe the most exciting thing for me was once a year we would get to go to this get-together. And even though we were a conservative political talk morning show, we still somehow qualified to get to go to this thing called Morning Show Boot Camp, which is the get-together for all of the morning zoo radio shows in the country. (laughs) Just take a minute to imagine what that looks like. More Hawaiian shirts than you have ever seen outside of a Jimmy Buffett concert. Just the zaniest slash saddest people you have ever been at a Westin with. There would be these breakout sessions about like how to make the right kind of prank phone call on the listeners or what version of the Battle of the Sexes bit was really bringing in the female 25 to 54 demo. It was a, a pretty, it was a pretty weird scene. I liked working at this place though, but what happened for me was a pretty extreme change of scenery. I went from working at this conservative talk radio station where like the main goal of the place was to get Bill Clinton removed from office and then executed. <laughs> I went from that to working at a public radio station where the goal was to get Mumia Abu-Jamal out of prison and possibly elected president, <laughs> if that could be like arranged. It is a kind of major culture shock for me. And yet I noticed something after being in both of these places, which is that they weren't as different as you might imagine. You know, uh, you had people, granted they were coming at the problems kind of from different starting places, but you had these people at both of these radio stations who just felt like our job is to report things as honestly as we can and to tell people about stuff they wouldn't otherwise hear about. And I think when people think of media bias, they think that people in the media get up in the morning and like look in the mirror while they're washing their face and they go, like, let's go deceive America today. And of course, that's not how it happens, right? Most of the people that work in the media, whether it's Fox or otherwise, they're really, they're kind of doing their best. And I have to say that I mean, I really and truly, I'm, you know, I have to say that I, I never myself tried to, whether I was working at the conservative talk radio station or covering Congress for NPR, I never tried to report a story in some way to reflect my personal needs and desires. Um, well, that is not true. When Congress outlawed online poker, I was not pleased with that. Because who the hell is the American government to tell me, I mean, Americans what they can and can't do with their money online. I was incensed. But you might hear me saying all this, talking about how there's not as much media bias as you might imagine, at least not intentionally so. And you might, you might think I'm trying to put some kind of complicated agenda out there even right now. But I am promising you, I have no agenda. I barely know what I'm talking about at any point on this show. <laughs> you are safe with me. And you will realize how confused I am if you listen to the next hour of radio. 
So let's, let's do that together. What do you say? All right. Seattle singer-songwriter Shelby Earle is so good. She is so good, she actually caused an NPR music critic to ditch the idea of journalistic objectivity. It sounds like some Rupert Murdoch to me. <laughs> to ditch journalistic objectivity to say that people should listen to her new favorite songwriter. Her first album, Burn the Boats, was named Amazon's number one album. You may have missed in 2011. Her newest release is Swift Arrows, and it's filled with the kind of gorgeous, heartbreaking songs you alternately can't handle and also desperately need for some reason during a breakup. Please welcome Shelby Earle to Livewire.
Shelby Earl, the latest record is Swift Arrows. She's going to be back out here in just a few minutes. You are listening to Livewire, the only radio variety show to win the Magnum PI Lookalike Contest as Tom Selleck in Maui two times. That's right, two times, 1987 and 1988. Excuse me, that's my bag. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> Look, I know my bag, okay? That's my bag. Hey, don't touch my suitcase. This is mine. All right, all right. What's going on over here? Uh, this woman is trying to take my bag, sir. Either of you have a claim ticket? No. no. Great. Let's see here. No identification on the bag. Way to go, you two. Uh, look, this is a Samsonite 1221. That's mine. Well, I have a Samsonite 1221 as well. Okay, we're going to have to just open it up to get to the bottom of this. No, 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 no. no, no. no. What? I, I, uh, I have a lot of um, personal things in there. Yeah, I have uh, items that might be considered... Look, it's private, okay? Well, somebody's got to look in here if you two can't figure out whose bag it is. Look, I'll take a little look, and if you describe what I see, it's yours. Oh, but, um, yeah. But, but I, oh, God. Uh, oh, sweet Christ uh, on a cracker. Uh, All right. Who wants to start? Okay. Uh, I should have some clothes in there. Oh, good job, Blue's Clues. You got one right. There are clothes in here. How about something more specific? I, um, I, I think my charger's in there. Oh, yeah, my, char- my charger's in there. No, you can't say that. I said that. Okay, I will say this. There is a charger in here. Anyone care to admit what it's a charger for? Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, come on. Next item. Give me something here, you guys. Okay, is there something a clown would squeeze? Yes. Would it get me thrown out of a red lobster? No question. How about something a bird would be afraid of? A bird? Hell, probably. I'm afraid of this. Is it something you could wear to a Czechoslovakian funeral? Uh, no. Is it a solid at room temperature? But gaseous below zero. Anything Uh, that feels paleolithic. Something minty, but not really minty. Something that would look scary strapped to an apple, but harmless on a rhino. Anything that feels like the opposite of vitamin E. That is not a thing. Okay, okay, okay. What about something your grandmother would at first love, then hate you for, then buy one for herself... Then finally return your calls. <gasps> oh my God! I think we're talking about the same thing. You mean? Uh, yeah, that. That is definitely what this thing is. This may sound crazy, but why don't we put this suitcase back and go get a drink at the bar? <laughs> I'd love to. Maybe when we come back, there'll be two bags here. <laughs> go enjoy your drink. And I'll be here when you get back, along with the NSA and a hazmat removal team. And I think you both know why. That's Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, and Andrew Harris. This is Livewire Radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with comic April Richardson, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick, and more music from Shelby Earle coming up in just a moment. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asked the question, have you heard of active sitting? We know, it sounds like an oxymoron. But if you can find yourself the right task chair for work, you can actually improve your core strength and burn calories while creating a stunning P&L spreadsheet. 
or just watching a video of a hamster stuffed 20 peanuts in its weird mouth pouch parts. Visit ErgoDepot.com to find your way to work healthy. Hey, welcome back to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. Have you guys seen Chelsea lately? Lately? That's an awkward way to get into an intro. If so, you might have seen our next guest on Chelsea's panel. She's an associate producer on the show and a stand-up comic. She's performed at Upright Citizens Brigade, the Hollywood Improv, and at festivals around the country. She's originally named one of the 15 up-and-coming comedians you should be laughing at. Please welcome April Richardson to Livewire. Portland? How's it going? Hey! Comedy 101, say the name of the city you're in to get a reaction. Thank you. Um, I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Are there any other Southerners here? Yes! Okay, good, because normally that's met with complete silence. And maybe you guys will get this and nobody else will, but yeah, so I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised in Georgia, right? Uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, that was when it was clear to me. Like, I get that the South kind of takes a beating a little bit, and, like, we get this blanket dismissal of, like, everyone's a dumb redneck. It's not fair all the time. In the case of my stepdad, very accurate. Very accurate. Um, but not fair all 100% of the time, I don't think. Uh, and when I got to Los Angeles, my first job there was doing data entry at Cal State University. And the lady who was my boss had never left the state of California. And somehow I was the ignorant one. I don't know how that worked out. But she would just openly make fun of me. When she found out I was from Georgia, just openly make fun of me all the time. Uh, before one lunch break, she genuinely asked me if I put molasses on everything before I ate it. And I was like, yeah, I don't see why that's... No, I was like, what? It's delicious. No, I was like, that's not even a stereotype I've ever heard of, you weirdo. Um, but then, you know, it's a college, right? So we had Martin Luther King Day off. So the weekend before that Monday, she was like, hey, you've got Martin Luther King Day off. You don't have to come in on Monday. Do you know who he is? 100% true. Okay. I was like, first of all, I'm from Atlanta, where he was born and raised. There's a giant monument to him in the middle of the city in which I live. So yeah. Second of all, I went to high school in the United States of America... Where we have history class. So yeah, I'm familiar with his work. <laughs> and I was like, third of all, even if I were to be like this ignorant Southern racist that you think I am, I'm like, we're not all homeschooled by Klansmen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's not even how it works there. You know what I mean? Yeah, that lady sucked. Um, but like I was saying earlier, even though some of those stereotypes are laughable, some of them are true. And uh, my parents gamble a lot. They love to go to Las Vegas. Love it. So they go all the time. So I meet them there. I mean, that's easier than going all the way to Atlanta. But the last time I was home in Atlanta, I noticed that there was a slot machine in my old room. <laughs> Thank you. My reaction exactly. So I was like, dad, why did you buy a slot machine? And dead seriously, my dad goes, for practice. <laughs> like I'm the idiot. Oh, okay. I was like, you know that's not something you can train for, Pops. <laughs> Random chance. But uh, he was serious. Dead serious about that. And my mom is like this really super southern 
like proper Southern Belle. Easily would have fit in in the cast of Designing Women, without question. <laughs> Easily. Um, and so when the jerk from Portland broke up with me, which, by the way, and look, I know what I look like fine. I'm not gross, but if this guy was, like, insanely out of my league. Where, you know what I mean? Like, I know my level. I'm not going to walk out here and go try to hit on, like, Brad Pitt. Like, I get my level. This guy was way, way out of it. He was, like, was. He's not dead. Hmm. Um, he's... It's always weird talking in past tense, like he still exists. Um, but he's like 6'3", blonde hair, blue eye, like Dirk Square Jaw, you know, captain the football team guy. Where the whole time I felt I was on borrowed time anyway, like he was gonna wake up one day and go, why am I dating a member of the Adams family? I could literally have any girl. So almost when he was breaking up with me, I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I can't believe you're here this long. Um, it's true. I mean, again, I'm not like, girl, I have fine self-esteem. I'm just saying that guy, I was like, really? You, you're saying yes? Um, that's weird. Uh, yeah, so basically it was serious. We had already met each other's parents and all that. So when he broke up with me, I was great. I was like, great, now I got to do this paperwork, right? <laughs> so I got to call my mom. So I call my mom and I'm like, hey, you know that guy that you met and you really liked? Well, he dumped me. And my mom, there's like 30 seconds of silence. And in the most serious tone of voice you've ever heard, my mom said, did you fart in front of him? <laughs> totally true. And I love the idea of that is what happened. Like I did, and he was like, we got to talk. This is not working out. And so I was like, yeah, many times, mom, but that wasn't the problem. We're adults. And... Uh, she was like, oh, well, he's, she's my mom. She's trying to comfort me. So finally, she's like, you know, he's probably sitting at home missing you too. And I was like, you met him, mom. You saw what he looked like. And that's when my super proper Southern Belle mom said, you're right, he's probably out getting laid. <laughs> and uh, turns out she was right, you guys. So that was the end of that relationship. And this set. Um, thanks. <laughs> April Richardson, right here on Livewire. First off, uh, April, Yes. we can get that guy killed. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. He's not that bad now. It's Are you okay worried now. that you're going to run into him? No, I do. He actually lives in L.A. now. Like we, it's totally fine now. Does he know that I'm you're doing those jokes? I'm at the point now jokes? where I can tell jokes about it, so it's okay. Does he know? Has he seen the oh, act? Uh, of course. That of has course. to be a, an interesting feeling for He's him. He's also a comedian. I mean, a lot of people in this room would know who he was if I said his name. Is it Louis C.K.? It is. Louis, it is Jerry Seinfeld. It's really weird. He's cheating on me with his wife. Seriously, no. misdescribed him if it's Louis C.K. <laughs> physically. No. Well, I did. I mean, he, he's a super hot dude. I described him accurately. And again, it's weird telling that joke because you guys, I'm not. I'm not a cutter. I'm not going to go home and cry in the bath like. Whatever, I'm fine. I'm just saying, if you saw the two of us walking together, you'd be like, that's interesting that that guy would, like, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. What was it like in Atlanta, Georgia, when you were a kid? And it makes you, perfect sense to me. I assume interested in comedy. Yes. What, I, I mean, was there an outlet for you as a kid growing up? Talking in the middle of class all of the time? Yeah, there was. Um, trying out jokes on my teachers when I should have been doing work? Yeah. That was pretty much it. I was always, like, the class clown. But to be honest, it was kind of like, well, of course you guys are laughing because, like, you have nothing else to do. Like, it's either laugh at me or do your homework. <laughs> yes, I would choose laughing at me. 
So I'm like, this isn't a gauge of how good I am at this. And also, so I was like, nobody's gonna find me funny except like these kids. But then when I saw Bob Odenkirk on the A-list, I was like 12 or 13, doing just the weirdest, awesomest comedy. I was like, oh, weirdos can make it in this business. <laughs> like, he's my number one, I think he's the funniest person who ever lived, and that was like my number one. Like, oh, I could potentially do this. You work on uh, the Chelsea Lately program, which I think is, is an interesting show for a variety of reasons. One is because it's one of the only places where comics, real comics, can kind of hang around and do it. Not since Byron Allen's <laughs> Comics Unleashed. <laughs> With his natural setups. I yeah. believe somebody once said, nowhere are comics more leashed yeah. than on <laughs> totally. Byron Allen's comics. But totally. there aren't a lot of uh, TV shows where, mm. there, it seems like there used to be a lot of shows where you'd get a group of funny people together, whether it was Hollywood Squares or some other totally. thing. Where it, it was a cool environment for people to just make jokes. Chelsea Lately seems to be one of the last places where that kind of roundtable environment exists. Right. I am thankful for that. I want to really quickly tell you that as a kid, I audio taped Hollywood Squares. I used to hold my boombox up to my Nana and Granddaddy's television and audio tape it. I was so in. I don't know why I wanted to listen to it later on headphones, audio only. Is that only. why that Jim guy Day broke Bullock, up with you? audio only. That's weird as a kid, but I did that. Um, but yeah, it is. It is actually kind of one of the last places that you can showcase like, hey, I can write jokes about topical things. Like, you know, I just learned these topics an hour ago and I wrote all these jokes about it. And um, yeah, it's a cool thing. I'm really thankful that I, I get the chance to be on it. Did I read correctly on your internet site that you have a podcast dedicated to the TV show Saved by the Bell? I'm 34 and I'm white. Like, of course I have a podcast, A. <laughs> and B, of course it's about Saved by the Bell because I watched it four times a day when it was on in high school. Every day. And uh, I have all of them memorized. What, how, what sort of stuff do you get into on that show? Um, okay, well... We, <laughs> this, I never realized what a dumb concept it was until I had to explain it into a microphone. So I'm really on the spot here, trying to think of redeeming qualities. Um, it's like we, you go episode by episode I and just episode do kind of an analysis. Like, well, it is. It's like, to be honest, and as fakely pompous as this is going to sound, it's like a critical analysis of it. <laughs> <laughs> But then also, because it was so ridiculous, and I watched it when I was in high school, and the kids were in high school, and to look back on it with adult eyes, it is bonkers. Like, it's bo to watch it now, you can count, you know, 15 times an episode that, like, the adults at the school would have been arrested. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Like, or even the kids would have been arrested. Like, just so many times where you're like, that is super illegal. You know, that's super creepy. I mean, there are episodes where the principal of the school, like, goes to the kids' houses and, like, <laughs> hangs out in their bedroom. Like... Yeah, so it's still, look, looking at it like that with adult eyes, it, yeah, it's crazy. What do you think the cultural significance of I'm so excited, <laughs> I'm so scared is? And can you, for the people that didn't see, can you give the context for, for that particular scene? Okay, for those of you who don't know, you should be ashamed of yourselves because it's a cultural, iconic moment. One of the most powerful anti-drug messages <laughs> broadcast true. on it's syndicated true. television during the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, arguably one of the most important episodes of television ever. I mean, I don't care about your who shot JRs or whatever. This is, this is what's up. Uh, is the episode where Jesse Spano, a character on uh, Saved by the Bell, gets addicted to caffeine pills in roughly 36 hours? Full addicted. Full-blown junkie. Um, she's taking some notos to study. Can't kick the habit after a day and a half. Can't do it. 
And uh, she's supposed to sing. Her friends were just signed to a record label, as you do when you're 15 or 16. <laughs> and they have to sing for the heads of this record label. But she's addicted to these pills and can't do it. And so they were going to do Should a Should we get of... into a little kind of acty thing here? Can I be... Who's the guy in that scene? Is it... Okay, first of all, his name is Zach Morris. How dare you? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm close to walking out of this interview. <laughs> okay, can I be Zach Morris? Yes, you can be Zach Morris. Okay, I don't remember the exact dialogue, okay. but, but we're in uh, your bedroom, I believe? Yes. I ask you how you are, right, or something to that effect? Um, How's the preparation for the... You asked me if I'm ready to sing. You're like, hey, are you ready for the audition tonight? Hey, Jesse, are you ready for the audition tonight? And I'm, I, I can't. I've got, I don't know all the words to the song. I've got, I've got to wash my hair. And you go, there's no time for that. We've got to go. Okay, you do your part. I'll do the line. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just, you didn't know his name, so I didn't know if you knew the lines to the right. thing. Okay. Yeah, so I can't. I don't know what to do. Like, I've got to, I've got to change my clothes. We don't have time for hair. that. We've got to go. No time. There's never any time. I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to study. And then you're supposed to say something. What do I say? You're supposed to say, we, we got to sing, Jesse. We got to sing, Jesse. I, I can sing. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. April Richardson, ladies and gentlemen, amazing. Amazing. That was April Richardson, and you are listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that Chelsea Handler has called, and this is a real thing, a bunch of public radio nerds in Portland. April, if you go on that show, you're fired. <laughs> uh, it's also the show that's sponsored in part by Laughing Planet Cafe. They source local ingredients for their burritos because, let's be honest, it's kind of silly to fly a chicken in from the other side of the planet, mostly because they feel self-conscious about being incapable of long-distance flight. <laughs> the important thing is Laughing Planet. So good, so close. More information can be found at laughingplanetcafe.com. And now, another thrilling adventure of Captain Buzzkill. He ruins things you like in a single bound. I loved Ender's Game. Me too! Laser tag in space is so awesome! Uh... Crap, it's Captain Buzzkill. That's right, I'm here to remind you that writer Orson Scott Card advocated violent revolution if the United States legalizes gay marriage. Really? Great, now I can't like this movie anymore. I hate you, Captain Buzzkill. Then my work here is done. Captain Buzzkill has super hearing, so no conversation goes by unnoticed. That is a cute shirt, Becky. Thanks, it was only $12 at H&M. Wow. That's more than the kid who made it earns in a year. Aw, man. Along with his faithful companion, the wet blanket, Captain Buzzkill takes on even the greatest challenges. I did my report on Thomas Edison. He was one of America's greatest inventors. He invented the light bulb. Don't forget, kid, he stole that idea from Nikola Tesla. And then he electrocuted an elephant. Excellent point, Blanket. I did mine on Alexander Graham Bell. He was a great guy who invented the telephone. You're right. He was a nice guy. But so was the Italian guy who invented the telephone ten years earlier. But 
Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. That's right, kid. But let me tell you a story about the Apollo rockets and the Nazi scientists who engineered them. And we're shielded from international prosecution because we wanted to help to beat Russia to space. History is stupid. Let's play Legos. Yeah. Great work, wet blanket. Captain Buzzkill and the wet blanket. They're not the heroes we want, just the heroes we have to deal with anytime something makes us happy. Did you hear that blanket? A woman in Illinois is telling her kid that Annie's shells and cheese is healthy just because it has a cute bunny logo. But it's the same chemical cheese formula. To the bummer mobile! Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, Courtney Hommeister, and Jason Rouse. Maybe one of the highest compliments we can pay our next guest, David Falkenflick, is that Geraldo Rivera of Fox News once called him a really weak-kneed, backstabbing, sweaty-palmed reporter. <laughs> High praise from an incredible mustache. You hear him on NPR all the time, you've seen him on CNN, and recently The Colbert Report, his latest book, Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old World Media Empires, covers Rupert Murdoch's rise to power and how he nearly lost it all. Please welcome David Falkenflick to Livewire. I think what a lot of people wonder initially about Rupert Murdoch is if he is a businessman who has identified that a certain type of media coverage and media production just makes him a lot of money, or if he's a true believer and it's all about trying to get his message out and, and you know, business consequences be damned. Which is he? Uh, there's one extra wrinkle in there. The guy loves newspapers. The guy, he's the son of an Australian newspaper executive, and he really loves uh, the feel that he can connect with readers. He loves uh, the tabloids in particular, the, the London Sun that has the topless girls on page three, and the New York Post that has a pun for every headline. Uh, but uh, he also loves them because they get him influenced with politicians. His readers are politicians' voters. And so in all three of the major English-speaking countries in which he's so, you know, influential in Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. He uses those readers to sort of gain leverage with politicians. And then he uses that leverage with politicians to help further his other business interests, like the, you know, uh, Fox Network, Fox News, uh, B Sky B in the UK. And those things are so profitable that they help then to subsidize the newspapers he loves so much. So it's kind of like a three-part circle that, that continually self-reinforces. Um, the, the book is, is really fascinating. I'm wondering... With all the research that you've done, do you feel like he is, is he to the right of what Fox News typically does? Is he to the left? Where does he drive with what a lot of us see when we're in a Applebee's and Fox News is on in the bar? <laughs> Just how I like to watch it. Well, Rupert Murdoch is genuinely a conservative dude, and no one should mistake that at all. But uh, Fox News is to the right of him. Like, Fox News is run by Roger Ailes, who uh, was a chief media guy for uh, President Nixon when he ran for election in 68 and for George H.W. Bush in uh, 88. And uh, 
he's a genuinely conservative guy with a vision. Uh, the idea is the network was cast not only to find stories that maybe the mainstream media wasn't finding, but to sort of sustain this grievance that the media is only approaching things from the left. And that was part of its story. It was, it was the media criticism all the time. And Rupert Murdoch is, is both a little less conservative and a lot more uh, pragmatic about toggling back and forth. You know, a lot of people forget he supported uh, Ed Koch, a Democrat for mayor, you know, uh, uh, and essentially lifted him from obscurity to become, become mayor as a uh, congressman, uh, you know, many decades ago. He supported Hillary Clinton in the pages of the New York Post when she ran for, for Senate in 2000. He supported Tony Blair, a labor you know, candidate for prime minister successfully three times in the UK. And these kind of center left guys and these very conservative guys, he goes back and forth and it means both parties think they have a chance of winning his support. Roger Ailes and Fox News, they're going to sort of not only uh, adjudicate kind of politics within the Republican Party, but you can't imagine their main, you know, leading voices ever really coming out and say, you know, this Barack Obama, I think he's got something. I'm going with him. Is writing a book like this the kind of thing that makes you nervous as a working journalist? Because, uh, you know, Fox News has been known to uh, hold a grudge. Sure. To people who are reporting things that aren't necessarily flattering. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the most daunting thing about it is actually writing the book, which is a guy who files stories of, you know, three to five minutes at a, at a stretch. You know, that 300 pages seems pretty long. Uh, but uh, Although the last third is footnotes. Sure. It really is. And I think this is interesting because, I mean, the point, I think, is that you had to be really ironclad with what you were asserting in this book, Right. Look, I mean, there are two reasons. One is that Fox holds a grudge, and, and the Murdochs are known to hold grudges. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, there, there are all these legal cases in the U.K. involving allegations of hacking into voicemails of, of cell phones of people and of bribing, uh, you know, uh, police officers and other public officials. And the British laws about what you can and can't report when there are trials going on are kind of insane by our lights. And so I wanted everything to be very, you know, carefully uh, footnoted, as you say. But, you know, they do hold grudges. Uh, they, there's one point after the Geraldo story I did that led him to that uh, flattering praise. Um, at which, can, you, uh, can you just uh, remind the people what you reported on Geraldo? Sure. I, I'm sure he would want me to do that. Um, so in 2001, he's left uh, CNBC to return to the fold. Uh, Roger Ailes had been his boss at CNBC, and he just couldn't stand being behind a desk. And, you know, he knew people who had been killed in the 9-11 attacks, and he wanted to essentially go to war against Osama bin Laden himself, the dastardly one, he called him. And so he goes to Afghanistan, and there's a day in, in early December of 2001 where he is on one knee praying on, on the site where uh, three American soldiers and various allied Afghan uh, uh, fighters had been killed by, by our own bombs in a friendly fire attack. And it was moving, and he says, uh, I think it's the Lord's Prayer, and uh, he, uh, you know, he's very moved, and he gives an account twice, uh, you know, from, from Afghanistan Live, explaining what he did and showing the videotape. Uh, as I was able to show, within a couple of days, uh, he was pretty close. He was about 300 miles away uh, from the site where they were killed. Uh, and uh, he had basically looked at the camera and said, uh, okay, are you on me? Are you on me? And then he pops on one knee and says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, hallowed be thy name. And he's, you know, essentially created a very poignant moment that didn't happen to be grounded in fact. So um, how did you figure out, like, did you recognize a boulder behind him? And, oh, that is not that part of Afghanistan. (laughs) Well, if you can take yourself back in time, we were getting all these reports from Tora Bora, right? You remember this? The mountainous regions of Afghanistan and their snipers and Geraldo's got a gun and it's all very exciting. And uh, uh, 
that's actually just a very different part of the country from Kandahar, which is, you know, really down in sort of the, the lower southern element of the country. And so I started to call people. You know, you see it. The thing is, they were like, how did you know this? And it's like, well, you did it on TV. You know, <laughs> how did I not know this? How did you not know this? You know, and uh, it was just uh, something where I called, you know, people who worked for the Pentagon, people who worked, who were in Tora Bora for various networks, people with international aid relief agencies and things like that, and said, is it possible to get down there? And they said, you must be out of your mind. You know, the Pentagon said, we're not ferrying him. Uh, the Afghan allied fighters had apparently three helicopters, and two of them were out of commission, and the only one would fly at the north, because in the south they would get shot down. And, you know, the, the roads between are pockmarked with mortar fire and you know there are various warlords and bandits on there's just no way it just can't be done and so this was I thought worth pointing out and did you ultimately (laughs) well sadly Geraldo has been processing his grief by tweeting out pictures of himself shirtless Oh, this is uh, a moment is, of courage. What are you talking about? <laughs> upsetting for all of us. We're talking to David Folkenflik. His new book is Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Um, can we talk a little bit about the, the hacking scandal? Because I know you spent a lot of time over in London when, uh, when this was sort of first hitting the news. And for the rest of us over here who were just checking in and out, how, how much did this really threaten what Rupert Murdoch had built? And, and also, really what was alleged to have gone on and what went on? Well, uh, uh, think about Murdoch uh, just before this breaks out. This breaks out, essentially erupts in the open July 4th, uh, 2011. And uh, uh, Murdoch at that point, it's a publicly traded company, I think it's worth pointing out, but he and his family control so many of the voting shares that effectively he can run it as though it's his own. Uh, they control about 40% of the newspaper, national newspaper circulation in the UK, and that's really a national newspaper market. In, by the way, just so you know, in, in Australia, he controls more like 65 to 70% of newspaper circulation down there. So when I say his influence, he really has influence. Uh, it was clear that his executives and politicians of both parties there were sort of interlocked. They were all trying to win each other's favor and working on one another's interests rather than perhaps the greater public good. Uh, he was also trying to take over at the behest of his son James, who was the chairman of their interests there, uh, the largest uh, private broadcaster called B-Sky B. They controlled 40%. They wanted all of it, hugely profitable, and they needed the approval of the Cameron government. So all of this is building up just as it goes to, to July of 2011, and it's really in those weeks that that approval is about to come from the government. And uh, then it turns out that not only have uh, the uh, tabloids of Mr. Murdoch uh, been engaged uh, uh, in hacking celebrities who are sort of uh, just fodder for coverage, and soccer players uh, and various executives in the soccer leagues who are, again, just fodder for coverage, and and actors and actresses, and even politicians who are vaguely assumed to be philanderers and corrupt anyway. But they did it to a 13-year-old girl who'd been abducted in 2002, and who for six months, a search for her was kind of uh, a national fixation. And they had hacked her phone repeatedly. And uh, there was the belief at the time, and it's now not clear, but belief at the time that actually the hacking into the phone had caused the deletion of messages, which had given her parents false hope that they had heard those messages. And so the nation said, well, whoa, whoa, you know, we're okay with the whole idea of the politicians and the celebrities and the sports stars and the movie stars and whatever. This is not cool. This could be any one of us. And in the days that followed, police developed uh, information and reports came out that actually people had been killed in the July 2005 uh, public transit terrorist bombings in London, that their phones were hacked, and that war dead of British forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, their phones had been hacked, and other victims of crimes, and suddenly it seemed like this was this monstrous 
you know, beast inside this best-selling newspaper, the two tabloids that were somehow feasting on the lives and the pain of the greater British public. And so it looked like all of his holdings in some ways could be in peril. And, I mean, has he emerged? I know this is still ongoing, you know, to some degree. There's still news coming out about this. But, like, has he regaled off the hook with this one, or is he, it's, has he been really kind of diminished by this whole thing? Well, look, in some ways he's taken some blows, right? His son James, who seemed to be on a glide path to take over the company, which is what his father desperately wanted, James is no longer seriously in the picture. Maybe some years from now he can come back. If you look at, uh, you know, there have been these uh, indictments of people he was very close to, the two top uh, newspaper executives, uh, a woman he thought of as his surrogate daughter who was CEO for his newspapers there, she's in the dock right now. If you look at the fact that earlier this year he split his company in two, so those broadcasting elements, you know, which were subsidizing some of the newspapers going through tough times, they are in a separate company, and they can't protect that company so, you know, anymore. And so those newspapers are in a much more vulnerable state. So you can say, my goodness, here's a guy who's you know, really taken some hits. On the other hand, you know, he describes everything from the company and being in personal terms. So at the age of 82, he says, well, I can write this uh, you know, new chapter in my life. You know, this is all, all a chance for me to begin anew. And so he talks that about- That is a really good Rupert Murdoch impression. <laughs> that is a full service guest, you guys. <laughs> Brings the very good Rupert Is that just from all of the studying of him that you've done? No, that's the ability to mumble with something that might seem Australian. <laughs> have you ever met him, by the way? I have. I, uh, I met him uh, at a party uh, for the launch of the Fox Business Network, and I congratulated him and met his, uh, his wife, from whom he's now divorcing. And uh, I said to him, you know, gee, uh, you know, we'd love to have you on, uh, on NPR. You know, you should talk to Renee Montaigne. You should talk to Steve Inskeep. I said, oh, I, I don't think y'all would have anything interesting to say. And I said, I, I really think you underestimate yourself, Mr. Murdoch. <laughs> and he says, well, I went on the Charlie Rose. And so I said, well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Do you think he knows about this book? Uh, I'm told he does, and I'm told they're not very happy about it. Well, I hope you've enjoyed being in journalism. <laughs> this is probably the end of the road. David Fulkenflick from NPR. The book is Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empire. Thank you. Livewire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market and their 365 Everyday Value line. How often do you think to yourself, I want macaroni and cheese, but only if it has yellow number five in it? The answer is never. You don't want yellow number five food coloring. And when you get 365 Everyday Value Macaroni and Cheese, you can be confident it won't have any ingredients named after a number. That's part of the Whole Food Eat As Promised program. More information can be found at eataspromised.com. This is Livewire Radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more music from Shelby Earl coming up in just a moment.
Hey, welcome back to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. We know it's hard to get enough of that sweet, sweet Livewire, which is why we have even more content waiting for you over at our website, livewireradio.org. Things like sketches from the writer's room that didn't make it to the air, some touching songs based on Craigslist ads, and timely poems from our house poet, Scott Poole. It's all waiting for you over at livewireradio.org. Well, it be, boys. I'm going to do three scrambled eggs with cheddar, two bacon strips, two sausage links, plus hash browns, and a side of white toast. Carl, order in. Trip pre-checks through hell and back. Toss it with Wallace and Gromit. Deuce a hog of ticklers. Pair of fat cigars. Tater guts. Side of the clan. And for you, hun? Yeah, darling. I want to do those uh, two buttermilk pancakes, slice of grilled ham, two eggs over easy grits, and a side of sourdough. Carl, darling, I need frisbees in the dirt, Wilbur's jacket pocket, Humpty Dumpty after the fall, cup of Rebel Yell, and a Harvey Milk. Actually, on second thought, can I change my order to the country fried steak with breakfast potatoes, turkey bacon, and a cup of black coffee? Carlito, honey, backtrack on the pre-checks. I need an Oklahoma Sunday with Don Rickles in the morning, gobble whips, and a Joe in the hoe. Yeah, I think the pancakes might be too heavy. Can I just get the granola with fruit? Carl, Bobby, scratch those frisbees. Butter up the baton and call Buzz Aldrin a clam slammer. Two okie-dokies, shingle on a shimmy. Splish splash, King Kong likes the clash. Move the kettle to the bowling alley and read me the career stats of Dan Gladden, top to bottom. Uh, all, all that was just for the granola? Uh, granola? I'm sorry, sugar. I thought you said oatmeal. Carl! Kill the History Channel. Give me hi-ho silver, roll them in sawdust, and toss in a Mexican massage. Put your boot on and call me heaven. Smoke a four-toed sloth playing skydive parcheesi. Smackety-smack. Line up the little ones and lop off their pigtails. Double-wide rucksack with Captain Picard. Hold Huey Lewis and the Jews. Oh. In that case, can I get a glass of orange juice, too? Punch the llamas in the change purse and fire the plumber. You don't work here, do you? Damn it, Carl, our cover's blown. Box the moon and roll up the slip and slide. It's time we shaved the cat and Ben Suster and our Greta. Got a hung jury in a corn tucky flop house. Laura Faye Smith, Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and the amazing David Falkenflick from NPR's media coverage. All right, folks, now a little segment where we like to answer life's most pressing riddles, the ones not asked by a troll. We call it Dear Livewire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We should totally hook up Dear Livewire. We get questions from our live audience. We also get some from uh, Twitter and all other kinds of places. And when they are real stumpers, we actually turn to an expert. This week's question has us a bit stumped. It comes from Ryan. Ryan asks... Which of the 50 shades of gray do you recommend? (laughs) All right. We're legally prohibited from, after the lawsuit, which I can't get into here, from answering this question, but we have somebody who can help us out. Her name is Leslie Harrington. She is a color consultant and the executive director of the Color Association of the United States, and she's called into the show. Leslie, thanks for coming on Livewire. No problem. First of all, the Color Association of the United States is a thing. Yeah, it is actually a thing. It's a hundred-year-old thing, actually. <laughs> and what, you guys just control the colors? 
Um, some people call us the color mafia, but we just think we help consumers get the right colors in their hands. Which of the 50 shades of gray would you recommend? Well, um, which room are we talking about? The bedroom? Presumably. Okay. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but I kind of have so, the gist. Yeah, picking the right um, shade of color, whether it be gray or any other color, depends on what the activity in the room is going to be. Okay. So the first thing we'd have to do is define what the activities in the bedroom are going to be. It's sort of like a mommy and daddy wrestling match, <laughs> I think. That's the way so I would it, describe if it. If we're staying in the gray family, um, it's going to be pretty low-key wrestling, and it would have to be a warm gray. Um, okay. Something, I don't know, like butternut gray or mushroom gray or something like that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Mushroom gray, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but if, if uh, you want it a little bit spicier and move away from gray, if you start to move into magenta or chartreuse or something a little bit more erotic, you can um, beef up the heat in the bedroom, let's say. I don't know. But Fifty it, Shades of Chartreuse doesn't really doesn't trip <laughs> off the tongue. All right, leave the gray on the walls and put the chartreuse on the sheets. <laughs> Is there any... I, I've heard this, and I don't know if it's just a, a made-up story, but every time I uh, am at the hardware store with my wife and I'm looking at that wall of color samples and it all looks the same to me, is, do, do guys see color differently than women typically? Do guys? Actually, yeah. um, well, guys have a greater chance of being color deficient or color blind than women. Um, so there is a chance... So I have a disability? Um, That's why I don't want to do these projects? Yeah, deficiency. Yeah, mental and physical. <laughs> that you don't want to do... Have you read um, the book Fifty Shades of Grey, by the way? No, but my 17-year-old daughter did. <laughs> Liberal household you're running there, Leslie. No, she, she did it behind my back. I didn't know until it was done. <laughs> that it was too late. All right, yeah. well, Leslie Harrington from the Color Association of the United States. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Bye. All right, that's Dear Livewire. Dear Livewire is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. This month featuring Snapshot, brewed with wheat and pale malt with an extra step to tart it up a little, which is why it's now considered the unadulterated floozy of New Belgium beers. That's okay, though. For more information and for your folly, go over to newbelgium.com to find out more. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please, uh, one more time, a round of applause for Shelby Earl. I've received your invitation. for us. 
dress me up like Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Bell of the baller of the moment. Make me out any way you want me. Just keep me, keep me, keep me in your story And I'll go swimming in the sea of life Yes, I'll go swimming in the sea of life Let it hurt, just make it last Let it hurt, just make it last By the hand I'll go Anywhere To the shores of my own denial Wait around with all the others On the shore Oh, just take me, take me, take me to Shelby Earl right here on Livewire. That is our show for the week. Thank you so much. A huge thanks to our guests, David Fulkenflick, April Richardson, and Shelby Earl. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission, and National Endowment for the Arts, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe in Portland, Oregon. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy group is Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hameister with show writers Sean McGrath, Scott Poole, Jason Rouse, and me. Our guest writer of the show is Alex Falcone. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Some of our engineers, Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Special thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about our show and how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast over on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. We'll see you then. 
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 